lace up your running shoes for this edition of the Seco Sports Forum. Sherm Chester and I have two special guests today. I'm going to call them co-hosts today. Uh, first off, like the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain. He is the producer of this program and executive coordinator for Exeter Television. And his name is Bob Glowacki. One of Bob's many talents, uh, uh, besides the technical end of this stuff, is, is he is uh, a runner. So that's going to be the theme today, obviously. And then my second guest is uh, an old friend. Uh, this, this shows you how Facebook has some positive things going for it. Uh, Steve Burris and I tied in via uh, an old-time broadcaster Facebook page, and uh, I was happy to, to finally find out how he was doing. And and uh, because we had, we go back into the broadcasting business many moons, uh, we have common denominator working for the hometown radio station in Exeter as news people. You were you were one of the pioneers. I was just one of the guys following following your lead. <laughs> Steve Burris is is our special co-host today, and also a runner. So this is the common denominator with these two gentlemen running. Now before we get deep into the show. What 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 stimulated you guys to be runners? What what is it that about running that gets you? I'll let Steve, Steve go first there. Well, first of all, I'm uh, I'm more of a shuffler these days than a runner, uh, but um, still at it. I recently had an ankle operation and uh, I got a couple of more weeks in my cast, so I'm hopefully can get out there again and uh, run again, however slowly. Uh, I ran in high school in the, the '60s, late '60s, in uh, Concord, New Hampshire had just a, an, an incredible coach uh, who just passed away recently at age 98. Shows you how fit he was. He was fit right through all his life. And uh, he was an incredible inspiration to all of us, not only for the running activity, but just, you know, how to be a good person and uh, his lessons to us about life. And he was just a, a guy that we were so motivated to compete for. And in fact, uh, he had something like eight New England championship teams and something like uh, 10 wow. uh, state championship teams, uh, both men, you know, boys and girls over his career. So he, he was a great guy. So uh, I was a, I was, I was in the top seven and uh, I was a, a tri-captain at that time. We had a team of like 62 kids, which cross country was huge back then. Uh, there was no soccer. It was just football and cross country. So the numbers were, were much larger. So that uh, was my primary activity in, in high school. I was never a championship runner, but I was a contributing runner on the championship team, which I thought was great. So I went to college to actually emulate my coach and be a teacher and a phys ed, uh, phys ed teacher and a coach. Um, you know, things change over the course of your college career. You get interested in different things. I ended up majoring in history for some reason, which uh, I did enjoy, but sort of had limited value in the employment world, but I always kept running. And um, after college, I, I ran a lot of uh, uh, road races and so forth. And um, there's a long story about how running actually led me to my career at Nike, as well as uh, a great career coaching, uh, great in terms of rewarding for me uh, at Exeter High School uh, in late 70s. So, I, want to, I, want, I want you to save that one for us okay. for a second, Steve. That, that part of the story, okay. I do want you to say that because that's where things are going to tie all together here today. Now, Bob, before we get into the, the, the thrust of the story, how did how'd you get tied into running? What was the thrill for you? So I've, I've been running since uh, middle school. So when I was when I was quite young, um, but I think I probably got into it. I'm the youngest of five boys and my mom probably 
was uh, tired of dealing with me having too much energy. So I think running was a good uh, outlet for that. And, uh, you know, back then, you know, running in, at the cooperative middle school, you know, it was kind of, you know, run walking. And um, but then when I got into high school, I really started to enjoy it and just the camaraderie of the team and, uh, you know, the friends that I made there. So I, I was a middle distance runner. So doing 800 meters and 1600 meter and um, but we also did the 5k and cross country and, um, I was, wasn't one of the best runners on the team, but, um, I tried to run with the ones who were the best. Um, and, and I, you know, uh, I loved our coach Gazzatelli, who was our distance coach who, you know, helped push us. And, and he put me with the A group cause I had grit, I guess. So, um, I would try and run with them and I, I got better. And, um, my senior year, I was captain all three seasons of cross country, indoor track and outdoor track. Um, and my, the highlight was I, I ran a seventeen twenty five, which isn't too fast for the 5k, but, um, it was a good achievement for me at uh, dairy field in Manchester. If you know that park, you go up and over that hill. Um, it was, it was pretty tough. And, um, but I, I really loved it. And I went on to, um, just uh, run as a walk on, uh, at Iona college in uh, New Rochelle, New York, where they're, they're one of the top 10 in the NCAA for cross country. And they, their, their slogan is assembled in the USA because they have people from uh, Kenya, Germany, UK, all these national champions come together. And, and uh, we've had some people go on to the Olympics and other things. So it was, it was really great just running with them, even if it was for the first two miles of a 13 mile run. And then they went their six minute pace and I just cruised along at what I could do, but uh, it was a great, great atmosphere. And now I just do a lot of cycling and stuff, but uh, I, I love, you know, paying attention to running and cycling and all that stuff. And it's, uh, it's interesting, the, the technology that's changed, which we'll, we'll get into, uh, I guess, in the talk. Well, well the thing was, uh, Steve, Bob and I were kicking around ideas for future shows and uh, for the Seaco Sports Forum. And, and, and he brought the fact that uh, Nike had a special edition Exeter running shoe that they were, uh, or that were available at George and Phillips in downtown Exeter. And also they were raffling off a pair for the St. Vincent de Paul food pantry. So I thought, hmm, this is, this, this makes a real good show. And I, I know, I know somebody else that's tied in with that Nike story, but before we go any further, Bob got a chance to go down to George and Phillips and interview Bert Friedman, the owner of George and Phillips. And he'll tell us a little background of, of the special edition and, and Nike in general. So let's, let's fire that up if we could. My name is Bert Friedman. I'm the owner of George and Phillips, who just will be celebrating our 101st anniversary in June. Nike uh, puts out limited edition shoes every so often, and through the grapevine I heard that they were coming up with an extra edition of their Air Vapor Max. And this goes back to when Nike's roots, really, even though they're out in Oregon as their main headquarters, uh, their first and only um, research and development factory was here in Exeter back in 1974. So they decided to commemorate that uh, with a shoe, the Air Expedition. And um, we were very, we were lucky enough to be able to get a few pairs. Uh, but when we only got a dozen pair total, it was like, how are we going to sell these? People, all these people wanted them. And how could it be fair to everybody? So we decided to hold a raffle lottery and raise money for St. Vincent de Paul, uh, who do a tremendous job in town for everybody. And I've worked with them in the past doing other things. Uh, and it was a tremendous success. Uh, we donated funds for each pair sold, uh, as well as this lottery to get in and uh, raise $2,000 uh, to give to St. Vincent de Paul, which is really needed now with the way things are in the world. 
And they had their factory here, and actually they had the one on Front Street, which was the research development factory. Mm -hmm. And then behind us on the river on Chestnut Street, they also had the factories there for a period of time. They also mm -hmm. had two factories in Maine uh, that they were using. Uh, so they're making a lot of shoes in the area. Right. The Old Wise Shoe Factory was the research development factory. Okay. That was their first one that they did here in town, where they developed shoes, made shoes, made samples. A lot of the shoes there they were, they were giving out to the local high school kids uh, to run in, uh, to experiment with, um, and, and see what worked, what didn't work. And, and a lot of the, their major, the old traditional shoes that really changed the industry were developed right here in Exeter. We were one of the first Nike shoes, Nike accounts in the country uh, back in the early 70s. Before they were Nike, they were originally Blue Ribbon Sports. And that was when they were actually uh, distributing Tiger shoes, which is now Asics, uh, before Nike even came about. Uh, and my father was on a first name basis with Phil Knight and many of the others uh, who started Nike uh, as we went out and, and helped develop the brand uh, on the East Coast and throughout New England. So uh, when Nike came to town in 74, my father helped them find the factory, actually, and uh, we became their only uh, independently owned factory outlet store. So we had a very unique situation, a very unique uh, relationship with Nike for many, many years. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they were nice enough to uh, give us a few of these uh, to show off for, uh, for the town. The boom of running back in the 70s when Nike came about, whatever, was an, a huge part of it was in New England. Uh, there was a big thing that way, in fact, this isn't the first shoe Nike's ever done for Exeter. Nike came up with the year Exeter, which was actually in their regular shoe line back in the year 2000. Uh, and they made, the, and this is the shoe, what it was, uh, and they had it in the line for a couple of years. They actually also made an Air Durham, uh, for, because a lot of the guys who worked at Nike were old UNH alumni, uh, so they did that. This new shoe they did uh, is, is one of their top of the line Vapor Max shoes, uh, and, and what they're doing a lot of now is trying to do a lot of um, recyclable materials and things like that. So the upper is a recyclable nylon. The bottom has their regrind material in wear spots where they've where they take recycled product to make stronger materials and everything. Big thing in the industry right now with that. You know, we've been doing it for so long now and everything else. There was an old running club here in town uh, that we were involved in a lot. We still help out with the new extra running club that started several years ago. Uh, they do a nice job. They do a lot of nice races and again a lot of nice fundraising type things. Uh, from the old uh, running club, we actually do a, uh, a scholarship at the high school still. We've been doing it for like 25 years now at least uh, in honor of Bruce Ellis, who was a, uh, a marathoner uh, who lived in the area and uh, who passed away unfortunately. And um, so we, we did a, a commemorative uh, scholarship in his memory that we've been doing for years now. Uh, in terms of helping the community, it's not, our big, my big thing is not just the elite runner, but that just person, that jogger, or even the walker who's coming in trying to find the right shoe for them over the right, over uh, that's going to work for them. Um, and that always makes me feel wonderful. when someone comes in a couple weeks later and says, my feet feel great, I'm having a great time. That's what I'm looking for. We want to help people get the right product. Kurt Friedman, our special guest, a great interview by Bob Glowacki uh, down at George and Phillips. Again, Bert brings out a point that some people, some viewers and, and listeners probably don't realize that uh, New England and New Hampshire, uh, the footwear industry was a big, big part. Uh, and we had two plants in Exeter. Uh, I'm aware of the Y shoe that he showed and we, we showed and he mentioned that also Alro shoe factories uh, here in Exeter. Um, now, Steve Burris, our special guest. This is where I'm going to tie you into this. Steve was a reporter, the news director of the radio station here in town, WKXR. That's uh, 
way back in the 70s. And about that time, you, you got involved with Nike, correct? Well, sort of. Uh, I used to do a show at WKXR called Coffee Chat. So every fall, every, every fall, I would have the, uh, the fall sports coaches on. And at that time, a guy named David Jenkins was the cross-country and track coach. So we got to talking after the show. We talked about uh, how many kids are running and, you know, how the team's going to do and that sort of thing. So he asked me if I wanted to come to a meet, which, of course, I did because I've always been interested in cross country. And as things ended up, I ended up sort of being a volunteer coach while I was working at the radio station. And um, that led to a number of contacts, uh, including a guy named Jeff Johnson, who Bert and it was great to see Bert again. Uh, he would know Jeff. Jeff was actually the first employee of Nike. Uh, he's the guy who came originally to scout out factories and uh, was responsible in part for uh, selecting the old wide shoe, wide shoe factory. So this guy, Jeff, I happened to be there and he came to David, the coach and myself said, could you guys test some shoes on some of your kids? And sure. And uh, so the kids got free shoes. Uh, I even got a pair. Uh, David, the head coach, got a pair and we'd run on them and we'd write reports. Well, about a year later, I was still doing radio sort of part time, but I really wanted to get in my teaching career going so I could coach and so forth. Uh, Jeff came to me and uh, said, you know, I really like the reports that you're writing. Um, would you like a job? And I said, what would I be doing? And he said, well, you'd be working on shoes. I said, well, I don't know much about shoes other than what I like. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, I always used to look forward to the next Adidas shoes that came out, which I was running in at that time. So long story short, they were staffing up in Exeter. They were looking for people who knew about running. They're looking for people who, who like shoes. And I said, well, I'm kind of got this part-time teaching thing going and part-time radio. And I said, well, you know, I'll give it a try. So I actually joined... Uh, Nike at the end of 1976. And that's how radio kind of led to coaching part. Because I was my early years at Nike, I was also still coaching. I actually became the head cross country coach at Exeter High and assistant track coach. And we had some some good teams. I think I think my team was the last team to actually win a state championship. We won the state class I championships in 1978, I think it was, or possibly 79, I can't remember. But Anyway, so at the, at the time I was working at Nike, I was also coaching and uh, I got an opportunity to move to England, actually to move to work on uh, soccer shoes, which I absolutely knew nothing about, but not many people, maybe nobody in, ex, in uh, Nike knew anything about. So that led me to three great years over in England working on soccer shoes. It kind of ended my coaching career, kind of ended my radio career, but it led to a lot of other things. And uh, I came back to Exeter in the end of uh, 83. And at that time, it looked as though the whole industry was migrating to Asia, which it was. And the next, uh, when they decided to actually move the Exeter operation out to Portland, I was going to leave the, uh, the company. And they said, well, look, um, why don't you move to Portland, Oregon for a while? And then we'd like to have you go to Korea, which is where most of the shoes were being made. So anyway, long story short, that led me to uh, 40 plus years in the business, uh, living a lot in Southeast Asia, living for a few years in Europe as well, uh, making shoes, always 
being tuned into the running world as well, because that was my first love, but uh, I got involved in other types of athletic shoes too. I just want to make make it clear, this isn't a Nike commercial we're doing. I, I, it just happened that was a springboard for this whole thing. I, I know you uh, have been involved with other companies. Yeah, sure. I, I, uh, I, 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 I left Nike after 11 years, I think uh, 87, uh, mainly because my wife wanted to move back to uh, this part of the country, which we did. But then I got other opportunities and I worked for uh, New Balance. I worked for Adidas uh, over in Germany and in Asia. Uh, so, you know, it was a it was a really rewarding career. Uh, there's a lot of stories about how shoes are made, where shoes are made. Uh, the labor situation, all that. The reality is these days, when people ask me, what kind of shoe should I get? What brand? I said, get the one that fits you the best. Get the one that really works for you. Because honestly, uh, a lot of them made, are made in the same mega factories. Uh, most brands use very similar materials. Uh, they all have a technology story and a lot of the technology is uh, authentic. Uh, some of it is a little bit more marketing than actual, but uh, you know, I think runners are smart enough to kind of discern what's going to be good for them. So, you know, every runner needs to choose the, the shoe that works best for them. So, uh, Bob, what, 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 what's your running shoe? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was partial to uh, Brooks uh, ever since that Iona. That was our sponsor. And, uh, you know, similar to other sports, um, you know, across the country, you know, teams or schools will get a sponsorship deal with some you know, brand to wear all of their stuff. And we got Brooks shoes and I kind of got hooked on those. And um, I, I like the more traditional running shoes. You see a lot of, you know, high cushion, low drop, all these different types of shoes nowadays. And, um, and I like running shoes that look like running shoes uh, to me. And, uh, you know, maybe a non-runner would look at a bunch of different running shoes and they all look the same, but, um, you know, I, I think there's something like the classic kind of more standard rubber with, you know, maybe a, some plastic support in there or something like that. Um, but now they come out with some really interesting things. I've, I've run in um, Newton shoes that um, they use like a compression piston type technology on the ball of your feet. So when you, you land it, it like pushes you back off and um, my calves burn for a couple days afterwards because they they have no, no drop and, and I'm getting pretty technical already, but, um, basically, you know, it's just, everyone has their own running shoe and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nicer, I guess, uh, probably for younger athletes because most high schools that I know don't have deals so you can wear whatever you want, where, uh, when you get up in the higher levels, if you're a pro, you got to wear your sponsor shoes probably. And, um, that's what you got to do. Even if you like, Nike and you're sponsored by Adidas. I, I, would, I would have a hard time being a customer these days. I'm fortunate enough, so I, I still know enough people in the industry I can get a, a pair of shoes to test every now and then. But when you look at, we call it the wall, the wall of running shoes that are in a, a footlocker or even a specialty running shop, I mean, it can be very confusing because it's it's so competitive. It's a, it's a huge industry. Um, you know, I know when I left uh, Indonesia, which was the last country I was in with Nike, we were making... Uh, uh, four and a half million pair a week of, of Adidas shoes. So, I mean, it just gives you an idea of the scale. I think Nike sells something like, uh, uh, well, it's, it's more than a half a million pairs a year. It's a, it's a, you know, it's incredibly uh, huge business, incredibly competitive. One of the reasons for all the technologies is that we call it a hook that, you know, the different brands are trying to have a hook that will hook people in to, to, to say that their shoes are different, their shoes are better. 
and they all deliver certain benefits, but they're not all the best for every runner. So you have to be very discerning. And, um, you know, Bob obviously knows what, what he likes. So I, I know what I like. Uh, I don't experiment much anymore because I don't want to get hurt. But there's just so many options out there. I've told Bob the story off air that years ago, I had, well, I've had bilateral knee replacements of so both of mechanical on both knees. But uh, prior to that, I was having issues and uh, I went to a doctor and he said, you got gout and they treated me for gout. And then he sent me to a specialist who said, you don't have gout. I can tell, but just take your shoes off and walk down the hall. And he, he came back and said, you've got the flattest feet I've seen. So he takes his prescription pad out. He doesn't write me a drug to take. He writes me two, two names. It's either one of those two places. They got specialists that will get you the right shoe and something with the ultimate arch support, which turned out to be the Brooks piece. That's one, the only thing I can really wear. I mean, I'd love to wear some of the designer type shoes that are out there. But the fact is, it, you know, it, I think a lot of people are turned on by the colors, like you call it a wall of the wall of shoes or whatever. People are looking at the designs more so than the practicality of what they're using. And, and that, that you're right. They've got to they've got to make sure they get what they need. It's very true. I mean, th there is a cosmetic fashion element to shoes. I mean, nobody wants ugly shoes. You know, you might want a shoe that really works for you with all kinds of straps and stuff on it. But everybody wants something that that looks good. Um, we, we had a designer when I worked for Adidas. We used to joke. We used to call him the jewelry designer because he would make these beautiful shoes with all these bits and pieces that were almost impossible to make. They look stunning, you know, whether they really worked or not. But it just it just shows you how important the design. I I like to say I was a designer when it was a primitive art. When I worked in Exeter developing shoes, I was a you couldn't call me a designer today. Back then, I was just putting stuff together. You, know, you worked with one of the uh, the, the guys that, that's a name brand, Steve Smith, who, who designed a lot of shoes for different companies. Oh, yeah. yeah, I worked After, with, yeah. He, he credits you in, in an article I read as being one of the guys, he one of his go-to guys when it came to coming up with a design. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I uh, worked with Steve at uh, New Balance, and we worked pretty well together on developing some new models for them. I was the, the engineering slash development slash production guy, and Steve was the creative uh, artistic slash functionality guy. Uh, we just you know really, really meshed really well. So later on, I, I moved on to Reebok, and uh, Steve came there after me. I, don't, I can't say that he followed me, but he came there not long after me. So we we continued to work together on uh, pump shoes. He did a really, really successful wild shoe called the Pump Fury. So uh, I was the head of that group that uh, that Steve was in that developed that shoe. So yeah, he's, a, he's one of the most gifted designers in the industry, uh, not only today, but you know, the last 20, 25 years. So. When it comes to designing a, a, a shoe, a running shoe, or even, even now the athletic shoes, the basketball shoes, whatever. Um, R&D, research and development, that's was your forte as well, getting in there and trying them out and seeing if they work, if they give you the support you need, whatever. What I've always been curious about, and I'm an old timer. I go back to the days Converse, another factory that used to be down in Massachusetts. Chuck Taylor's, the basketball sneaker, was in the old fashioned canvas lace them up type sneaker. That was the big thing. It, it went into the, I would think the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, and then they got more of the, the, the designer again, you mentioned it, designer type looks coming out of, of different brands, but uh, back to Chuck Taylor's, they had the old fashioned waffle soles and running shoes. I think started that transition to 
high tech soles for you know the planning of where the foot goes. Explain that to me, Bob, and, and and you can you can maybe kick in on that one too. What type of a of a of a runner sole do you need, or what, how do how do they determine that? I, I don't know too much about that. I'll let Steve answer it. But uh, what I found interesting um, when I read a book called Born to Run by uh, I think Christopher McDougall, he talked about the early you know running shoes and uh, you know they used to use waffle irons or something. As one of the story goes, I don't know if that's myth or legend, but you know the some of the soles of the, of the were super wide and they were you know hurting people's ankles and stuff until they kind of fine-tuned it um to um you know the first shoes that you know prefontaine and the other uh you know big runners back in the day were wearing so um you know i find it really interesting i don't know a whole lot you know as as, as much as steve does but it's interesting all that goes into the shoes and how they how they've changed over the years because you look at some of those early running shoes or athletic shoes and uh you wouldn't see anyone wearing those today. Yeah, what about R&D, Steve, on, on the soles? Well, you know, I ran uh, high school in the late 60s, and I can remember kids bringing Chuck Taylors to practice with them. I never had a pair. But at that time, New Balance was coming out with something called the Ripple Sole. So that was all the rage with our team. Um, but I, the waffle, I, I got to correct you a little bit. The waffle actually was developed by Bill Bowerman, who was kind of the who Phil Knight's coach. And uh, he was kind of the inspirational force behind Nike. He uh, poured some rubber into his wife's waffle iron. Uh, and, and that's how he came up with the first uh, waffle sole. And uh, when I was in work at Nike Exeter, he used to send uh, sheets of, of waffle back to us. And we would die cut them and, you know, put them on the shoes and test them out. Um, so, you know, there was <clears throat> in, in the design of running shoes, there's this debate between form follows function or function follows form. That the, the the design ideas first, and then you decide how it's going to work. Or no, you you need to address this running gait or this need, and then the shoe will look will the, the look of the shoe will will communicate that. But anyway, I mean, design has become a much more powerful force in developing shoes than it was originally. Originally, it was all about function, all about uh, making runners uh, run better, all about helping them not to get hurt. Um, a lot of, uh, we at Nike and Exeter, we had the biomechanics lab. So we would have runners come in and run on the treadmill. We do rear foot filming to see how much their feet turned inwards, which is called pronation, which is the source of a lot of injuries. Um, and, you know, and we had actual biomechanists there uh, who, who would run studies. Uh, we did something called a foot morphology study where we digitized thousands and thousands of feet to come up with a common foot form, the most, uh, the composite perfect foot. And we would say, okay, we should try to use that data uh, to decide like where the arch component's going to be, how much heel lift should there be. So a lot of it was based on biomechanics and then, then the cushioning part came in. Of course, there was still used in the industry today as a material called EVA, ethyl vinyl acetate, which is a, a foamed uh, cushioning material. It's still used. There's a lot of different versions of it now, uh, stuff with higher resiliency, higher energy. Then, there's, of course, there's air by Nike, uh, which really revolutionized cushioning. There's mechanical cushioning uh, composites. There's just all kinds of all kinds of different technologies. So, so in the R&D process, you're looking for good cushioning. You're looking for things that help stabilize the runner. You're looking for the optimum balance of weight and support, depending on what type of shoe you're developing. Uh, so there's just, there's a lot that goes into it. 
But well, I was going to say now you got the Olympics coming up here soon in Tokyo, and I know uh, one of your fellow alums, uh, Ellie Purrier, is going to be uh, representing Fantastic. the United States and uh, right here in New England and UNH. Um, I've run that race over five times so on video. <laughs> there, you there you go. And, and you know, I, I guess that's the, my question would be: We've talked about the R and D. Do they take somebody like Ellie and say, uh, okay? photo her foot or, or do some sort of a graph on her foot so that they know exactly what she needs for, for, a, for a running shoe? Yeah, in the case of the elite athletes, uh, there's, a, a, uh, there's a very important part of shoemaking is something called a last. And it's basically a plastic form that looks mm -hmm. somewhat like a foot and you make the shoe around it. And for production, for the average consumer, uh, it's a composite last that works for a lot of people. For the elite athletes, we actually do a digital scan of the, of the athlete's foot and develop their own last. So it's a last, it's a, it's a, I wish I had one here, it's a big plastic foot basically, and it reflects that person's foot exactly so that they get really, it's a, it's a custom made shoe. And then different athletes have different requirements on the amount of cushioning that they like, the amount of heel lift, the type of insert that they use, you know, do they want something with a a high arch or a low arch or uh, more lateral support on the outside. So yeah, um, the, the point is the elite athletes get a lot of attention. That's one thing when we had the Exeter facility, we did a lot of, we'd have all the athletes come in from uh, Athletics West, which was the, the Nike uh, farm team at the time. And we would do special lasts for them. Uh, we, you know, we made special lasts for many great athletes back then. Uh, even some of the Boston Celtics, the Red Sox, Exeter made the uh, the shoe that Carl Yastrzemski hit his 3,000th hit in. And, oh, wow. Yeah, there was a big picture of that shoe in the Boston Herald, I remember. So so the answer is yes, the, the elite athletes get a lot of special attention, special shoes made for them. I, I, I had to laugh when I heard Bert talk about uh, testing shoes with the Exeter High School runners, because that was basically myself and uh, and the, the women's coach, who was Jeff Johnson, who was my boss, who was, had great, great women's teams back then. And yeah, we would, the kids got shoes to run in, which was a big treat for them. Uh, and it helped us a lot, you know, say, okay, which, which shoes held up, which ones didn't, uh, how did the kids run in them? Were they comfortable? So uh, that was a lot of fun. And I, I remember Bert and his dad back in those days, just being such great supporters of the company and also of Exeter sports. I wish that was around when I was still in high school. Yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great time. in Exeter. I mean, Exeter was just, I mean, we would have, uh, I remember when I when I was coaching, uh, we had Sebastian Coe, who was the world record holder in the mile, uh, about from England, 1979, 1980. He actually came to Exeter. He gave a clinic uh, to the kids over at Phillips Exeter Academy and the Exeter High School kids, uh, just talking about running and so forth. And then you know we made the shoes for him in Exeter, and you know that was just an example of how exciting it was back then. We'd had Olympic champions and uh, you know just some of the great sports heroes just you know come come to exeter and get their shoes it was it was really fun as i was i was saying earlier i didn't want this to become a nike commercial but obviously nike had a big influence in in your life and so that's what i want to ask yeah. a couple of follow-ups uh phil knight and bill bauer and those are the two creators of nike uh, again of all the of all the brands uh boy they took off i mean the between the swoosh and just do it. 
I mean, uh, you had a good R&D, obviously, for the product, but also your marketing people were top-notch, too. Yeah, it's, uh, it, uh, I can't really put my finger on what it is specifically that propelled Nike. I think mostly it was Phil Knight's just total commitment to, to, to excellence and say, you know, we're, we're going to do the best that we can. We're going to be the best. You know, and there were years where I was at Reebok, actually, when we overtook Nike for a year, and they took that as a challenge. It was probably the worst thing that Reebok has done as Nike came roaring back. Uh, you know, they've just, they've just got it wired. And, yeah, you know, of course, marketing is a huge part of it, but they also make great product. But, you know, just about all the major brands make really good product. That's what makes it hard, I think, as, as a consumer. Uh, it, it, you know, there's, there's so much good product out there. You got to you got to find the one that's right for you. And Brooks is great product, and New Balance, Asics, uh, you know, Reebok. You know, it, you know, pick the shoe that's right for you, regardless of brand. With Nike, a lot of people just want to be part of the brand because they're, you know, they're so tied into world sports and the identity of, mm-hmm. of, of athletes excelling, and so you know they they just got it wired. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say in, in high school. Um, uh, Nike was really big, at least for the uh, the specialized shoes that you needed, the spikes yeah. uh, for track. Yeah. Um, as a distance runner, if you didn't have the Nike victories, you were the like uh, you know you you, you want to look fast uh, even if you don't race fast. So the the bright neon colors and the um, that was like the top of the notch technology for us high schoolers. And um, you you looked at the start line of a sixteen hundred meter or eight hundred meter race. Every single kid had. Nike victories on, um, no socks, ready to go with the spikes. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a cool thing. Everyone, uh, you know, really got into their spikes as, you know, as a kid. And I think Nike did a good job with the, the, this, the marketing, I guess, and the, the design, the colors and everything like that, as opposed to some of the other ones that were maybe more practical focused. And, um, but what I've noticed in the most recent years, I don't know if you've noticed this, Steve, is that, um, there's been a lot of what I would say is like maybe independent or smaller shoe companies that have come up with their own um, technologies or own spins on what running shoes should look like. And now when you go into a runner's alley or a George and Phillips, there's, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot more to choose from um, than just the, you know, the few major brands that everyone knows about. Um, I can't think of some of the names off the top of my head, but there's, there's a lot of new ones out there that, um, there's uh, there's Topo, uh, there's Ultra is another one. I think, <clears throat> to their credit, what a lot of these other brands realize is, you know, we're not going to chase Nike. You know, we're, we're, we're never going <clears> to <throat> be them. Uh, we, they don't want to be them. We want to have our own niche. We want to find customers that uh, will benefit from our products, and we want to be true to our customers. So there's a, it's a great part of the, the market now. There's There's room for you know, multiple players. It used to be kind of the, the two big guys dominated everything, which was Nike and Adidas, and to some extent Reebok for a while. Um, and then, of course, they would get all the shelf space in the stores. And But now with the online sales and, you know, all the digital penetration into the market, um, there's room for a lot of different brands. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's been a really good thing. And a lot of these brands have been able to get established. The question I was going to ask you, Steve, is in relation to the marketing part of it, uh, not so much with running shoes uh, or running wear, uh, more so with the athletic uh, basketball, I guess. Let's stick with that. Marketing towards an audience uh, kind of blindly for design purposes. 
Does that, do you see a lot of that just going on in the business now? I mean, it doesn't matter what brand it is. They're all just kind of marketing a name attached to a, a sneaker. Yeah. I mean, that's been a big debate in the industry. To what extent uh, does uh, the glamour of signing big names uh, drive sales? And there's obviously something to it. I mean, look at what Michael Jordan has done specifically, right. but, you know, in, in other brands too. And they, they still do it with Adidas. They're, they're all about soccer. I mean, they dominate soccer around the world. So they sign a lot of soccer teams, uh, football, as they call it over there. And, uh, but it's still a big part of the business, but it's not, it's not a ticket of admission you know, to the business. You know, like the smaller brands, they can't really afford to do that. Maybe they'll sign one athlete who has a lot of credibility and they have these programs called local heroes where, uh, you know, they, yeah, they sign big name athletes, but they also sign influential local athletes who people look up to it, you know, in the local running community and so forth. So, you know, there, there's a role for that, uh, but it, it kind of fluctuates, I think, as to how, how much that actually drives sales and to what extent do people buy a shoe because, you know, so-and-so wore it. Of course, you know, the Kobe Bryant shoe and the Michael Jordan shoe, there's obviously a lot of flair to that, but uh, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the marketing sales dynamic, but it's not the only thing. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what you were saying. You, you want a shoe that works for you, whether whatever yeah. sport you're playing. I mean, you can't, you can't force a foot into something that doesn't fit or is uncomfortable. It's going to hurt your game, not, improve it, whatever you're playing, you know, whether it's running or baseball or basketball, you know, it's, it isn't the style. It's what's, what's, what's inside the shoe that counts, right? Yeah. I mean, there used to be a statistic. I don't know how true it was, but basically that we used to say that 75% of people that buy running shoes don't run in them. So they, we call <laughs> some of the shoes we call the barbecue shoes. Uh, you know, but there, it, there's a lot of truth to it. A lot of people wear running shoes for the comfort. A lot of people wear running shoes because they want to kind of be identified with an active lifestyle. But so it depends on the customer. I mean, a real serious runner who wants to perform and stay injury free, they're going to be much more discerning on what type of product they, they want. Others might want something that, well, they know it's basically a good supportive product and it looks good. So, or they saw somebody mm -hmm. else wearing it. So there, there's so many different dynamics and, and you know, the purchase of shoes. Yeah, well, we were talking about runners earlier. Uh, Ellie Perrier, another one I want to uh, give a shout out to is a, a young lady from Exeter who's done very well. She did great for the Blue Hawks and she's doing, I guess, big things for the Notre Dame fight, Fighting Irish, uh, Jackie Gahan. She uh, oh, yeah. quite yeah, a runner there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I still love, I mean, I've been out of high school coaching for years, but I, I still love to follow it. Those, those kids are so well. Uh, so motivated, you know, very courageous. It's, it's a great sport and cross country in New Hampshire, uh, as well as indoor track, outdoor track, you know, it's such a great sport and uh, some, some great coaches out there. And, uh, it's just great to see. Yeah. I just, I just add on to that, that yeah, for, for my years, it always seemed like uh, maybe if the, the, the team always would win around the seacoast region or whatever. Um, and uh, we would place well and, you know, division one, I, I guess is what it became uh, while I was in high school, uh, they, they redid the division system, but um, we always had at least one or two runners on the boys and girls team that, you know, were really good caliber and went on to run in college. So it was always good, um, you know, to have that. And, and after I left, I think it just ramped up, you know, the, the younger kids, all the records were coming down um, ones that were there from the eighties and, even earlier started to, to fall down to a couple kids who would just, you know, go after all these. So 
it's really good to see that, that history. Your your coach, Joe, uh, he was coaching when I was, actually. I think he was in oh, wow. Spalding or Dover. I can't remember which. Uh, but I remember him. He's, he's, a, he's a fine coach. Um, so it was nice to hear they moved on to Exeter. Of course, when I was at Exeter, we were at the old high school. We didn't have a track. We had uh, the foot, the the field out back. We would actually do like a square track around the back. And we even held a couple of meets there until coaches wouldn't come anymore because kids were getting hurt. But uh, okay. uh, we I, we would have loved to have the facilities that Exeter has now. Yeah, I found I found a really, uh, uh, when we were digitizing film from the Historical Society, I think it's from the 1940s or 50s, but it's the kids practicing behind the high school. And um, you see them just running around in circles on the field and, you know, people are having brush fires in the background in their, house, <laughs> their houses and stuff. And, uh, but then, you know, there's also some stuff because, you know, I think back then they used to race against PA at that time, maybe yep. had a dirt track as well. Behind me, the virtual background here is the cage is what a lot of people remember it. I was one of the last runners to be able to run in this. It was a old facility at Phillips Exeter that they were kind enough to let public high school use for indoor track practice. And, you know, it, it got uh, dusty on the, the in the air there, but uh, it was interesting running around on basically a suspended basketball court. Um, and the nets are there so you don't fall over the low railing and hurt yourself. But uh, it was fun doing workouts in there. And we would go up to UNH to their track for most of our meets or out to Dartmouth sometimes. But um, uh, now it's a really nice facility. I haven't had, got a chance to go in there, but they, they redid their whole uh, indoor track and you know, added in gyms and stuff for all the other um, sports. So, um. I was so bummed out when I heard that Exeter was tearing down the cage because even when I was in high school in Concord, we used to come over there for all the meets. And of course, when I coached at Exeter, um, the academy was so great to us. We could use the cage, we used the trails outside. Uh, but once I saw the new facility, I didn't miss the old cage so much. But uh, it, it was great. Yeah, just the yeah, a lot of good memories in the cage for a lot of people. My my best memory is we we once a year on each season we'd have a meet against Phillips Exeter, kind of like Exeter versus Exeter, fun meet because we're not competing in the same you know divisions or anything. And um, we had the normal four by one teams or the four by four teams, um, but the shock putters and the uh, would always team up with the distance kids for the sprint um, uh, races and put in our own relay. And it was funny having a, you know, a really big shock putter, hoofing it down to hand it to one of us distance guys who were, you know, maybe not that quick either. And we would, we'd be getting passed by the, the sprinters, um, but it was always a good time in there. And uh, it was, you know, pretty interesting running around there on the dirt track there. You don't want to slip and slide, but a uh, good experience. I think it made everybody uh, stronger athletes for it. Um, so. Yeah, I think it was a 10, 10 plus laps to the mile, if I recall. So that was yeah. one of the very first indoor all-purpose facilities because you had the, the track, obviously. Uh, I know they did baseball tryouts there for the high school and, and also for uh, uh, the junior league, as they call it now. We used to call it the little league. So, I mean, it was an all-purpose facility. It was, and there weren't many around back then. I would, I would like to shout out to the coaches at Phillips Exeter back in those days. Uh, Ralph Loveshin, who's passed on, and Dave Dimmick was the cross-country coach. Ralph was the overall uh, track cross-country program coach they were they were wonderful guys and uh, they were so good to the to the town which i always speculated that was one reason our town was so slow to get our own facilities because you know we had the academy so um it, it's it's great to hear that that thinking finally changed and they got a wonderful new school wonderful new facilities did you, now, did you uh, both uh, have the uh, cross-country did you use exeter cemetery as part of your track 
Yeah, actually, uh, so. when I first started coaching, they would run their races around near the high school around the field in the back and they would cross the street, right. and run through the cemetery. Oh, that's a little more uh, morbid, I guess, running around a bunch of graves. Yeah, yeah. I ended up actually uh, changing that and running and we called it Fort Rock back then. I don't know if it's still called that. Yeah. We would start in Swayze Parkway and run down the parkway and go across the fields and up into the trails. And uh, so we, yeah, luckily over at, at the new high school, um, they, there was a little bit of a trail system around the school that they put in, um, but it's not not that great. A lot of, you know, bogs and puddles and stuff. Where and, and when I was in high school, Tripoli was the big threat. So we we ran all of our home meets for cross country, just doing many laps around the soccer fields and then the building. And, um, but, uh, there's a nice trail system, uh, the rail trail that goes from, uh, new market, basically all the way to, uh, Manchester. So we would, we would go through some trails to that and have some nice, uh, nice paths to go on smooth and easy. And the, the best was, uh, um, in the summer training that you're allowed to do, you're allowed to do a limited amount before school starts. Um, and we would get dropped off at Odeon State Park by a bus um, for the long crew, and they'd drive to Hampton Beach and drop people off at different distances, and they picked everybody else up at um, Hampton uh, Beach. So uh, once a year in the summer, we, we would get that really long run in, and they had water stops for us, and that was the highlight of the summer summer training was, you know, you get dropped off and the bus leaves you and it's up, to, <laughs> yeah. up to your legs to get you uh, home. So that was always a fun, fun day. Not as bad as survivor though, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> they come looking for you after dark. If you're... Yeah. Yeah, there, there's some ice cream stands along the way, you know, if you uh, hit some money in your shorts or something. <laughs> a couple of questions I want to ask you both. Um, first off, do you have, or uh, in your careers, did you have somebody that you had as an idol to get you motivated for running or that you said, Hey, I wish I could do like he, 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 he as a runner is doing for times or whatever. Anything like that, Steve? Well, when I was in high school, there was a, a miler. His name was Jim Ryan and uh, he was the world record holder for the mile. He was the first high school runner to break four minutes in a mile. He was, he was definitely my idol back then. Uh, and uh, he, he didn't win his gold medal in Mexico city. And then he, he fell in the 72 Olympics. And, you know, I was, but he was always, he was always my idol. And coincidentally, uh, years and years later, I got to meet him in uh, Exeter because uh, this is after he had basically uh, retired from racing, but he was still running. And he came to Exeter for the, the treatment that I uh, mentioned earlier, the foot scan and the special shoes. And mm. that's when I finally got to meet him. So, but, uh, you know, he's, he's one of them. I'm Bill Rogers, you know, the marathoner, he's, he was always an inspiration to me. Uh, not that I could ever even carry his shoes, but the, he was, uh, you know, he was tremendous. So. What about you, Robert? My, my inspiration was an 800 meter runner. I think he ran for maybe Oregon state and then he ran for the Oregon track club, Nick Simmons. And, uh, I think I even, uh, I, I took the dialogue from the sports announcers as my senior quote in my uh, yearbook senior year, um, because he, uh, he was my kind of 800 um, meter runner in terms of tactics. Um, Cause a lot of people, they'll go out and just try and run in the front the whole time and, you know, use their strength, but he was a lot more tactical and, and, you know, hanging in the pack. Um, you know, it's just two, two lap race and it's, you know, basically a long sprint. Um, and he would kind of hang in the back in the last 300, 200 meters, just pour on uh, those legs and give a big kick. And um, 
there's a great, and there's Olympic trials, I believe, for either uh, the 2008 or the 2012 Olympics, whatever trials it was. He, he came from last place uh, in the last 200 meters and won, you know, uh, to qualify for the Olympic team. So he was, he was my runner and he was a cool guy, you know, in the post. Uh, I think he went on to do some stuff for Brooks or another company and launched his own running gum company and all these things. And uh, I think he did a couple of beer mile races too. <laughs> I haven't done any of those myself, but he was, he was a cool, cool runner that all the young guys were looking up to. I think you can tell, you can tell Bob and I are from different eras, not, not only by our looks, but uh, you know, the, the people that we knew. Cause I, I remember Nick Simmons, but of course my, my hero was a much different era, but uh, both great athletes. The point is you had somebody that inspired you. That's what counts. And, and the one thing I, I, my son, only uh, was in track one year. He, he was uh, doing the high jump. Uh, and uh, I, what I really appreciated about that year, he was primarily a baseball player and he had played some basketball at EHS. But when he was in track, what I liked about it was it was personal best. He wasn't competing against. Yeah, that's true. It's just a personal best thing. If you can hit that bar and, and, and just go a little higher every time, whatever your personal mark is, that's what counts. Yeah. You know, you're not, you don't, you don't feel the guilt of failing a team. You know, you may feel like you failed yourself, but I, usually it's like, I'm going to get it next time. I'll do it next time. There's always that in the back. My, my coach used to say, there's a little man inside of you that's telling you, you can't do it. He's the guy that you're really competing in. Right. You beat that little man inside of you. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to you, Sharon, before the show about the, you know, the camaraderie, I guess, of running a little bit and uh, you know, to kind of that personal best and the sportsmanship of running, as opposed to maybe some of the more team sports, if you will. Uh, during high school, I trained with people from Winnicott. We would meet up at the beach and we would go run together. And, um, you know, I would cheer for them in their races, even though they're, you know, our rivals, because it's really, um, you know, you're racing against the clock uh, more so than, than the other runners. I mean, in, in some of the meets where you need to score points and stuff like that, if you can, but um, even the runners who weren't placing first, second, and third, you know, they had their own race race to do. And I think that's what it appealed to a lot of people. And I mean, every year there'd be like 150 people on the track team the first uh, month uh, until shin splints hit. And then uh, maybe like 50 of them dropped out. But, uh, you know, a lot of people got into it because they could just do it for themselves and still have a good time. Anybody in the upcoming Olympics you guys are supporting or are hoping the big things will happen other than Nellie Purrier, obviously I'd like to see a gold medal there, but any, anybody else that we should keep our eyes on? Um, geez, I've been so focused on Ellie lately and uh, um, I'm trying to think of the 1500 men's uh, runner who uh, he actually won in Rio. He's been injured a lot ever since. Um, uh, I can't remember his name, but the, uh, I'd like to see him do well again. And Bob? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't know who's qualified. I remember the, the last Olympics I paid attention because uh, there were two uh, Iona College um, alums that made it. One ran for Army, um, and uh, the other one was from uh, Germany, I think, or somewhere. So um, I haven't, don't know who's in it this year, but uh, I just like watching the distance races and you know, seeing when people are getting close to those world records. It's always exciting. At the end of each, each program, uh, we do this thing called the two-minute drill, Steve. And what it basically is, we, anything in sports we want to throw down on the table. Uh, it doesn't have to be about running. It can be about anything in sports in general. But um, what uh, what I'd like to do is go to Bob first, give you a chance to think about something you might want to, want to tell us about. Bob? For my two-minute drill, um, I want to talk about the Tour de France, which is happening 
um, this year. Um, last year, they still held it, even with COVID, and it went pretty successful. They had a really strict quarantine protocol, but, but this year, so far, and it's all about the crashes. Um, in, the, in the first couple stages, they've had some huge pileups, and the big news was a, a woman who they think is from Germany or something was holding a sign to their grandparents, um, and they were looking at the camera as it drove by, and it just clipped the arm of one of the riders, and it caused a gigantic pileup. Um, many riders on top of each other, um, a couple of them had to abandon the tour, um, and they're, they're looking for the woman to find her or something. Caleb Ewan, who is the one of the faster sprinters, probably the fastest in the race, um, was sprinting so hard um, in fourth place uh, with Peter Sagan, the Slovak world cha- uh, Slovak champion and former world champion. They were both going at it. And if you ever know, watch cycling, the sprint's the really exciting part right at the end when they're running up to the line. And he touched the wheel of the rider in front of him, went down and broke his collarbone in four places. So, and he knocked out um, Peter Sagan doing so. And all the riders organized the protest, um, I think, of the race organizers for the kind of setting up the these conditions that helped lead to some of these. Uh, but most of the crashes have been user error um, on the, the cyclists, either just, you know, tapping somebody's wheel and taking a lot of people down with them. And some of the GC or the general classification contenders, the people who can win the yellow jersey, win it all, they've, they've all fallen um, at least once or twice. So if, if you have never watched cycling, I think this is the year to watch it because, uh, you know, some people maybe watch NASCAR for the crashes. And uh, if, you're, if you're that kind of guy, you, you should check out the Tour de France this year because it's all about the crashes so far. Steve, before you do your two-minute drill, I, I just want to, you to bring people up to running speed of, of what you're up to nowadays. I mean, I assume you're still working, right? Yeah, well, I mainly do consulting now. I've worked with a couple of smaller brands. Um, earlier, Bob mentioned Newton. I did I did about a year-long consulting project with them. Uh, COVID kind of put a quash on things because a lot of what I was doing involved traveling to the, the factory sites in, in Asia, and something I haven't done for more than a year now. So, I mean, I'm basically retired or semi-retired. Um, I do a little coaching of a, a local high school kid, um, but, you know, I'm pretty much, a, pretty much on the, on the, I always say it's a, it's a young man's business now. So, uh, you know, there's not too many slots for, for us, us relics. So oh, hey, you've got experience. that's what matters, my friend. And you pass on, I tell my kids that, Hey, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. If you listen, you may not make them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. What, what about a two-minute drill? Well, um, you know, I was so angry with the Red Sox when they got rid of Mookie and then Andrew Benatendi left and um, Jackie Bradley Jr. is gone, Mitch Moreland, all these guys I left. I'm not even, I said, I am not even following. I'm, I'm so, but I'm hooked, you know, especially after the last few games and uh, saw the pitching performance over the weekend. And, uh, you know, so I'm a Red Sox fan again. Um, I don't, I didn't even know a lot of the players and, you know, some of them finally are becoming sort of household names in our house. So, uh, so I'm back, but, um, I got to get down to a game, but it just goes to show you, you know, sports fans are kind of fickle and, uh, I'm, I'm as fickle as the next guy, but, uh, uh, I miss, I miss my favorite players. I thought we were set for years with the greatest outfield in history. And uh, of course that was all broken up, but, uh, you know, pro sports is, uh, it's a mixed bag. It, there's, it, there's much too much about money, but that's, that's what it is. And, uh, but there's still a lot of enjoyment there. So 
you know, that line from Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Show yeah, me the money. Exactly right. so, so it's still fun. <laughs> well, it is. And, and, and my two minute drill, uh, actually, uh, it's uh, kudos to our producer here, Bob Glowacki and his crew at Exeter TV. Um, and, and Steve, you've been around here years ago, but you're familiar with the Exeter Brass Band. Oh, yeah. and the town concerts they do every year, every summer at the bandstand. And uh, it's a special event. Uh, it's only like four or five weeks they, they do the concerts, but it, it is. It's, it's really special. They've been doing it since 1847. And last year, because of COVID, obviously, and probably a few times in the past with uh, during World War II or whatever, they may have missed a few years. But it was hard, it, 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 not not having that continuity. And uh, but it was great to see them back. Uh, and uh, the Monday nights downtown Exeter, right at the bandstand. You can't miss it through July. You bring your lawn chair, sit back, relax, enjoy the music. Uh, and if you can't get to the concerts. That's where Bob comes in. They are putting them on Exeter TV, Channel 98. Uh, it's also going to be on YouTube and Facebook. You go see them in person and, and, and you really have fun. Uh, and it gives you, especially after watching it last night, it gives you a sense of normalcy. Uh, you know, things, things are getting right here at home and that's what counts. Or as I like to say, Americana at its best. Time to adjourn the meeting, my friends. All right. Well, Bert Friedman, thank you for joining us at the uh, beginning of the show and also to our special guest today, Bob Glowacki. Thanks for the idea about doing a show about running. Especially thanks to Steve Burris. On behalf of Bob Glowacki and Steve Burris, I'm Sherm Chester, inviting you to join us on the next edition of the Seco Sports Forum. Be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to get notified about new episodes of the Seco Sports Forum. Follow the Sports Forum team behind the scenes on our Facebook and Twitter pages. This is Sherm Chester inviting you to join us for the next edition of the Seco Sports Forum. Yeah.